Welcome to today's podcast from Coastline Calvary Chapel in Gulf Breeze, Florida. We hope this message encourages you and brings light into your life. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 1 this morning, as was mentioned. We're in kind of a small teaching series focusing on Christmas, but let's go before the Lord in prayer before we get into God's Word. Lord, we do thank you for this time of year, whether it's, it's warm or cold, we're thankful, Lord, for your Son, Jesus, for he really is the focus, the purpose, the ultimate reason why we celebrate this time of year. Lord, I'm so thankful that we get to be together, that we get to open your word this morning and learn from your word, that we get to sing together and fellowship and pray and give towards your kingdom. Lord, your church has been doing those things for thousands of years, gathering together on a Sunday morning. Lord, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And I just pray as churches are doing this all over the country, all over the world, as we're here in this place this morning, God, that your spirit would move in power. Lord, that you would anoint your word, that you'd open our hearts to it. And Lord, that our hearts would be like Psalm 37 says, verse 4, where we're delighting in you. That, that concept of having a soft, a pliable, an open heart to you. God, I pray as we step into your word that we prepare for it with a soft and pliable heart. God, speak to us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Matthew chapter 1 this morning is where we'll be. And as was mentioned, we're taking this month kind of focusing on the ultimate message, the ultimate meaning of Christmas by taking some time to consider some of the, I guess you could say the classic chapters in the New Testament and the Old Testament centering on the birth of Jesus the arrival of Jesus, the coming of, well, if you look at it through an Old Testament lens, the promised Messiah. You know, for years, God's people waited in anticipation for Advent. You say, well, what is that, Advent? The appearance, the arrival, the coming of the Messiah. And you know what it's like to kind of um, wait for something that seems like it'll never happen? Sometimes like around minute 47 of a sermon or something. You know what I mean? No. But to kind of wait for something that you feel like, okay, when's it? Like in our home, at least for our little ones right now, that, that happens. It's been happening for the last week and a half. When, when December 1 hits on the calendar, Linus shows up. You may not know Linus. You say, what, you got another kid with an L? Elf on the shelf. It had to be an L in our family. Our family has, we have six little ones and they all start with the letter L, their first name. But when Linus shows up, it kind of instigates this, this time of anticipation for our little kids, Leo and even Lainey, our one and a half year old. She's always looking for him in the first thing in the morning. And there's an advent calendar with a little bit of a chocolate and a note that comes with Linus every single morning. Every single morning. <laughs> but for the little ones, it's like this anticipation, you know, every day. And there's a little bit of fighting, I guess. It'll give you some insight into our, if the little one finds it before the other one finds it, then they tell. It's this thing. I don't know why we started this thing. But anyway, it's created this, con, this, this kind of mindset of anticipation in our home for Christmas Day, right? Well, God's people had an anticipation for the arrival of a Messiah, 
Since the beginning of time, really, the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, God gave a promise. Beginning with Adam and Eve, when sin entered the world through the disobedience of Adam, we find in Genesis 3 this promise. God actually speaking to the enemy, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And listen to what he says. Between your seed and her, what does it say there? Seed. seed. If you know a little bit about biology, that's not the dynamic. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's interesting. If you kind of follow through the Bible, the Old Testament promises that God would make with his people, it's interesting how the promise of a Messiah begins to unfold in the Old Testament. Some of those early promises, those early covenants that God would make with his people, they don't necessarily explicitly promise a Messiah like we see in Genesis 3, but promise great blessings. Blessings that God's people knew that in and of themselves, they are completely unable to attain by themselves. I mean, if you walk through the, the story of God's word, you begin to pick up on a theme that, that God's people have always struggled living up to God's standards. W would you agree with that as you read through the Bible? Good, three people. Creighton believes it in the back. Okay. Yeah, there's this struggle. Think of Noah, God's covenant that he made with Noah. He's going to destroy wickedness on the earth, but save he and his family. And it's a remarkable way in which God keeps his promise. Gives Noah these plans to build an ark. Gathers animals of every kind, two by two. Sends rain, which at that time on the history of the earth, no one knew what that was. For 40 days, for 40 nights. It says the, the deep places of the earth, the waters opened up and flooded the earth. And after that time of flood, God sends a promise through a rainbow that he'll never again destroy the earth in that way. But it's interesting. If you know Noah's story, it doesn't just kind of end that way with the rainbow and everything becomes roses and rainbows in the life of Noah. He struggles thereafter. In fact, within a few generations, we're told of the story of the Tower of Babel, that people once again are in a place where God's standard is here, and they're not. Think of the book of Exodus. The covenant that God makes with Moses. Moses is actually on Mount Sinai. Thunderous, cloud, covering the mountain. He's receiving from God the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. And the Israelites below, while all this is going on, are giving themselves to idol worship, right as God is authoring, so to speak, the Ten Commandments. And Moses is there. Maybe even think of like when God establishes that covenant with David. David. And he makes this promise, this covenant with David, that his descendants, his kingdom will reign and rule forever. But within one generation, David's son almost completely divides the kingdom. And by the second generation, it's completely divided. It's interesting. These covenants that God makes with his people, there's this promise of the Messiah 
But within those promises, sometimes what you really see is this promise of great blessings that people know that in and of themselves, they cannot live up to. They cannot attain. I found one author who said this. I thought it was insightful. He said, God can destroy 99.99% of all wicked people, yet still wickedness will continue as before. He can give a clear summary of what obedience is, right? The Ten Commandments. Yet wickedness will continue as before. God can give a nation, the greatest warrior, the wisest king, the grandest temple, and still wickedness will continue as before. So then what's the deal? What's the, an the answer there? Well, throughout the Old Testament, there are promises given that evidence God's heart and God's plan to send a... Yes. Yes. To send a Savior. To send a Savior. Genesis 3, we've referenced that this morning. Exodus 18, God promised that he would send this one who was like the prophet, like the prophet Moses. The book of Psalms, God promised to send one who would be a Lord and his son, one whose body would never decay, one who would be a priest forever. And not everything was crystal clear throughout the Old Testament exactly how the Messiah would arrive on the scene. Would he be a triumphant king? It seems like many that, that knew the Bible... At that time, Pharisees, Sadducees, that's what they were expecting. We're, we're looking for a conquering king like David. Would he be a powerful prophet like Moses? Or a suffering servant or priest like Jeremiah? And, and if you know a little bit about Old Testament history, there was this time of exile for God's people. And during that time, God raised up prophets to remind God's people of his promises, of his covenants, of his faithfulness, and that anticipation for the arrival, for the coming, for the advent of the Messiah was building. You can look at references like Isaiah 53 or Jeremiah 31, where God describes and promises that there is going to be one who's coming that's going to be this like this guilt offering, the one who will bear the sins of many and a new covenant will be established. In fact, this entire book, the Bible, is about God's faithfulness, faithfulness to make provision for us to solve the problem of sin, to dissolve the finality and the pain of death. And throughout history, God's been preparing his people for the coming of his son. I think this morning I'm going to kind of share a line a little bit over and over. And here it is. The story of Christmas, the ultimate meaning, the ultimate message, is the fact that God is the ultimate promise maker and promise keeper. The story of Christmas is the story of God providing good on his promise to send a savior. Yes. Not a Tesla, not a timeshare, but a savior. That's the story of Christmas. You know, there's so many wonderful songs, so many things at Christmas time. One of the songs that nails the story of Christmas isn't a Christmas song at all, but it's one that Pastor John referenced last week. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. 
This morning, we're going to get into the gospel of Matthew chapter 1. And it's interesting. As the first gospel of the New Testament opens, kind of with this anticipation from God's people for the Messiah, we, we see a description of that promise fulfilled. That's chapter 1 of the book of Matthew. And we come to kind of an intriguing way to begin this description of God providing on his promise. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1 of the book of Matthew. He writes this. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Now, to me, that's really an interesting way to kind of begin to describe page 1, chapter 1 of the first book of the New Testament of God providing on his promise. Here is a record of the ancestors. But that's the opening, a genealogy, an account of the ancestors. Why? Like a couple questions to consider. Why does, why does Matthew do this? I mean, there's so much anticipation around the arrival of the Messiah, and Matthew opens with a, a list of names. Why does he do that? Who, who is Matthew? What's his story? Well, Matthew's most well-known for being a disciple of Jesus, but before he was a disciple, he was a tax collector. In that day, in that time, many would kind of put tax collectors with another name called a publican. You say, well, what does that mean? Why does that matter? Tax collectors were totally and absolutely despised in their culture. Not just because they collected taxes, but because they worked for the Roman government. And they often enrich their own lives by collecting taxes, most often dishonestly, from their own people. And in that culture, especially by the religious individuals, they were seen as very, very sinful people. People that if you were associated with them in any way, your own reputation would be completely sullied. And you see, Matthew fits as a prime candidate for the ultimate message and meaning of Christmas. The story of Christmas is about God providing good on his promise of a Savior. And that was Matthew, someone who knew he needed saving. You know, when Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house with many other, what they would call at that time, publicans, tax collectors, the Pharisees questioned Jesus' disciples. Does he know what he's doing? Why, why is he choosing these kind of companions? And in Matthew 9, listen to what Jesus says. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to save the not good, Right? There's no such thing as the good people. He says, listen, everyone needs a savior. I've come for those who know they need me. And in part, I think that's why Matthew opens up with a genealogy. You say, what do you mean by that? You know, the gospel of Matthew, Matthew selected specific material from the life of Jesus to share a specific truth, that Jesus was the promised Messiah the king of the Jews. He was rejected by his own people, crucified as a savior for the whole world, and now is alive in heaven. So why the genealogy? 
Well, for one, Matthew is strongly and clearly connecting Jesus to some of the most well-known individuals in the history of the Old Testament. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, King David, Solomon, all the covenants, all the promises given to those individuals. He's showing, listen, Jesus comes from that line. And he's showing through this genealogy, a legal genealogy, through his legal father, Joseph, Jesus' connection to these promises. The other genealogy we're given in the Bible is in Luke's gospel. And Luke follows the line of Mary, Jesus' blood relative, through David's son, Nathan. And the point is this, whether you follow Jesus' lineage through Mary or through Joseph, Jesus is a descendant of David and eligible and qualifies to be the Messiah. He makes that clear in verse 17. Matthew doesn't list every single name of the ancestry of Jesus, but in verse 17, he says this, all those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylon exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. He's not saying, listen, I'm listing every single name, but I'm showing you the way in which Jesus, his line, goes all the way back to David. It evidences Jesus' clear, legal lineage to be the Messiah. Say, okay, I I get that, but, but what does that have to do with Christmas? Well, It's easy to miss, but it's not so much the names that are listed here of like the who's who, like, oh yeah, Abraham, you know, the the father of the Jewish people, David, Isaac, Jacob. It's not so much the who's who that are mentioned here that's interesting, but Matthew does something that's very uncommon. He lists the names of four different women in this list of Jesus' genealogy. Listen, at that time, in and of itself, was radical. But the names of the women he lists, he says Tamar is of this line. Tamar was a woman of promiscuity. He, he, He lists Rahab, who was a foreigner and also potentially a promiscuous woman. Ruth, she was an outsider. And according to Jewish law, would have been excluded from Israel. Bathsheba is the fourth name, the mother of Solomon. And Bathsheba, I mean, some of these names, are there any Tamars in the room? Bathshebas? These names weren't names that were passed on and carried on. They were names that often when they were spoken, you go, oh yeah, that's part of our story. Bathsheba, who's primarily known, whether willingly or unwillingly, was David's partner in adultery. Why is this here? I like what David Guzik says about this. He says, these four women have an important place in the genealogy of Jesus to demonstrate that Jesus identifies with sinners, even as he will in his birth, baptism, life, and in his death on the cross. And then he quotes something from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon said this, Jesus is the heir of the line in which flows the blood of a harlot Rahab and the rustic Ruth. He is akin to the fallen and to the lowly, and he will show his love even to the poorest and most obscure. 
It's interesting. Matthew opens up his gospel with a list of names. And as we're taking some time this month to focus on the message and the meaning of Christmas, the story of Christmas, the ultimate message, the ultimate meaning is the story of God as the ultimate promise maker, the ultimate promise keeper, providing good on his promise to send a savior. savior. We've doubled in the number of individuals that have caught that already. <laughs> providing good on his promise to send a Savior to all people. As a tax collector, Matthew, he says, I qualify for that. I'm one who needs saving. How he opens with this account of the birth of Jesus and he lists these names. Sure, to evidence Jesus' legal lineage and right to be the king of the Jews. Absolutely. But also as one who identifies with sinners. The name Tamar's there. Rahab, Ruth, a foreigner, Bathsheba. Why? I'm going to tell you why. Because the story of Christmas, the ultimate message and meaning, is the story of God as the ultimate promise maker and promise keeper, providing good on his promise to send a savior to the whole world. A savior. So starting in verse 18, Matthew begins to tell us this story of God sending a savior. And it's interesting. In Matthew, we're interestingly set in the sandals of someone who's somewhat forgotten in the story. We get to look at the Christmas story from the perspective of Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus. Let's pick up in verse 18. Let me read verse 18 through 25. He says, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, well, he was a righteous man and didn't want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. And as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you're to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet, look, the virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. Matthew sets us in the sandals of Joseph. You know, in our culture, we don't mention a lot about Joseph. We've got Mary, did you know, right? But Joe is there. We've got Silent Night. We, we sung it this morning. And man, that rendition of Silent Night this morning was awesome. It was beautiful. That song speaks of Mary. 
But you know, Joseph is mentioned in all four Gospels. Not a word of what he said is ever recorded in the Gospel account of his life. And in fact, there seems like there's more sermons, thoughts, commentaries written about the Old Testament Joseph than there ever is about this one. But in reality, if Joseph hadn't obeyed God, what would life be like? Joseph's not a bystander. Think about this. Joseph, who loved Mary through a very interesting pregnancy, strange, some would call it suspect. And if Joseph, well, God used Joseph in what way? Well, he provided the necessary social framework within Judaism for raising Jesus. The social framework. And that got me thinking, what would that be like to be in Joseph's sandals? And I came across a video that I want to share with you in just a moment. It's a little dated, but it helps give a picture. I think it helps us step into the scene of maybe how Joseph was feeling, could have responded if something like social media had been in play as it is in, that, in our day. What would that have looked like for Joseph hearing this news? Maybe this is what that first Christmas felt like, looked like for Joseph. Let's check this out.
Yeah, it's interesting. It's amazing because that kind of sets you into the emotive state, so to speak, of maybe what Joseph would have gone through, what everyone would have gone through at the announcement, at the arrival, at the birth of Jesus. It's an amazing thing to consider the birth of Jesus, as Matthew does here, through this lens of what God does with Joseph. You know, we're told in verse 18 that Mary and Joseph were engaged. Now, that's different than the kind of engagement we're familiar with in our culture. Other translations before you may say that, that Mary was betrothed to Jesus. And to give a little bit of context to what would have been happening in that time, engagement happened at a very young age. In that culture, parents actually made the decision of whom their children would marry. And that was the first stage of marriage. There's two others. There's the betrothal time, which was about a year's time. And when we step into the story of Mary and Joseph, that's the time that they're in. They're betrothed. They would have gone to a synagogue and had a formal ceremony and contract signed, a pledge to be married. And at that time, they were considered husband and wife. No, no physical relationship yet, but promised to each other. And for one year's time, they were in this period of betrothal. And the only way you could break that off was through a formal ceremony of divorce. And after betrothal, you would have a formal marriage ceremony in a synagogue, and there'd be a huge ceremony, a huge celebration with family and friends. And that approach is obviously very foreign to us as 21st century American Christians. But you've got to set yourself in their sandals, right? Joseph and Mary are betrothed to one another. Since they were little kids, they had to have been expecting and anticipating this time where they would come together as husband and wife. A sense of excitement and joy for Joseph, for Mary, for their families. And Joseph finds out that Mary is with child. He knows the child's not his own. Now, we're not really told how he finds out this news. It probably wasn't a social media update, right? But he finds out this news that Mary is with child. It's got to suck the air out of the room. A sense of excitement, joy, expectation. I mean, we're not told this, but I, Joseph may have gone from that that height of excitement to maybe shock, sadness, confusion. We know that Joseph was a, a carpenter. I mean, what are the buddies saying? You know, the next day he goes to work. What are the friends, the family? What kind of pressure was he under? Because in that time and in that culture, Joseph kind of had three options in how to respond to this news that Mary's pregnant. He could expose Mary publicly as someone who's been unfaithful, what would that mean for Mary? Well, under Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 22, she could be stoned to death publicly. Now, at this time, the Jewish people are under Roman rule, and the ability to have capital punishment was removed from them. So Mary most likely would have not been stoned to death, but life as she knew it would die socially. She'd be shamed publicly. He, he could divorce her privately. All he had to do was to kind of have a certificate of divorce that was witnessed by two people, and it would be done. Or a third option, he could marry her. 
You know, in Exodus 22, it says that if a betrothed couple ends up pregnant, and the text sort of assumes or presumes that they're the ones that had physical relationship, they could be married. But, but Joseph, knowing that he had nothing to do with the pregnancy, he's opting for the second option, right? He's going to show compassion. That's his heart. He loves Mary. As the, as the word tells us that he's a righteous man, didn't want to disgrace her publicly. So he opts for option two. Let's do it privately. He's got to be experiencing shock, sadness, confusion, but also fear. Look at verse 20. It says, Joseph had a dream. The angel appears and says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. There's probably a thousand things he could have been afraid of. The gossip, maybe, the slander. Maybe he's thinking about the future. If I take this on, what does that mean for me in the rest of my life? The blame, who knows, maybe he's thinking if I divorce her, what, what, what will happen to Mary? He loved her. But in this dream, the angel shares four things with Joseph. Number one, Joseph, the baby that's coming was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Number two, Mary is going to have this baby. Joseph, you're going to name the baby. And the baby is going to save the whole world. The first thing he hears is that the baby that's coming was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That had to be very helpful information for Joseph in that dream, right? And it's also extremely unique miracle, the virgin birth. You, you see unique miracles happening all throughout the Bible. Think of Moses with the burning bush or the parting of the Red Sea. You know, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, I'm kind of waiting for my burning bush moment with God or for him to split the Red Sea or to slay Goliath. Like as I read the Bible, there was one burning bush experience. It's not that everyone's looking for that. And, and there's one virgin birth experience. It's extremely unique. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. One author says this about the virgin birth. Why is this so important? The, in the virgin birth, the immaterial, the spirit of God, and the material, Mary's womb, were both involved. Just as at creation, the earth was formless and empty and dark, Mary's womb was empty and barren. And just as at creation the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, so the Spirit of God came upon Mary. And only God can make something out of nothing. Only God can perform the miracles of creation, the incarnation, and the virgin birth. And the virgin birth is important in that it preserves the truth that Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. His physical body he received from Mary, but his eternal holy nature was from all eternity past. Joseph the carpenter did not pass on his sinful nature to Jesus for the simple reason that Joseph was not the father. Jesus had no sin nature. Joseph is told here the baby that's coming was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And the angel says, Joseph... Mary is going to have this baby. You're going to name him Jesus, which at that time was a common name. In that culture, you might see many little Jewish Jesuses walking and running around. But in his name, listen, we see the ultimate message and meaning of Christmas. Verse 21, for he will save his people from their sins. 
The story of Christmas is the story of God as the ultimate promise maker and promise keeper, providing good on his promise to send a Savior to all people. And in verse 23, he quotes from Isaiah, tells Joseph, they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So here's the question. What does Joseph do with all that the angel shares? Look at verse 24. He rolled over and thought maybe he ate something weird. No. (laughs) Verse 24. He woke up and did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. Joseph obeys, gets up, and does what the angel tells him to do. And not only does he obey, but he's fully committed. What do you mean by that? Listen to what one author says. He says, Joseph is committed and would not touch her physically till after the baby was born. Why is that important? Why does Matthew add that, he says? It's as if Joseph was saying to Mary, I don't want anyone to say I had anything to do with what God is doing with you. I don't want any gossip or rumors going around. I'm not going to even touch you till after this baby is born. I want everyone to know that this is a God thing. I love that, that this is a God thing. The story of Christmas is a God thing. It's the story of God as the ultimate promise maker and promise keeper, providing good on his promise to send a what, church? A Savior to all people. That's the ultimate message, the ultimate meaning of Christmas. And Joseph sees that, and humbly and completely and wholeheartedly, he obeys God. He follows him. And I think that's the simple lesson I want to leave us with this morning. Joseph is remembered for his obedience. Obedience is at the heart of the Christmas message. You say, what do you mean? Philippians chapter 2, 8, speaking of Jesus, why he came, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. I read something about Joseph that I want to share with you as we close this morning. One author puts it this way. He says, our lives are often built around following our own will. They're built on doing what's right for ourselves and making ourselves look good in the eyes of others. Those things are the opposite of what being obedient to God is all about. Joseph was a man of simple obedience. He was a man of few words a man of action. We could learn a lot from this silent hero in the Bible if we took time to listen to his actions. The next time God asks you to do something out of the ordinary or that could paint you in a negative light, will you argue with him or answer in simple obedience? You won't have to say a thing. Your actions will speak louder than words. You know, this morning, this month, We're taking some time to consider some of these these classic chapters in the Bible that center around the story of Christmas. And Joseph, 
is this interesting character in this narrative, this story that many of us are so familiar with. Not a lot of songs written about old Joe, not any words recorded for us anywhere in the Bible of anything he said. We're not given tremendous insight into how he was maybe feeling. We know he was fearful. The angel said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. But one thing we do learn from his message from this silent hero in the Bible is this simple life of obedience, following the Lord. You know, walking with the Lord is the purpose of your existence, a relationship with Him, a relationship with Him. And out of a healthy relationship with Him comes health out of that health exudes or spills over into every other aspect of your life in a sustainable way. You exist to be in relationship with God. And it's interesting, kind of how we started our time together this morning. As you follow the history of humanity, would you agree that people kind of struggle with living up to God's standards? Creighton's with me again, back on the back row. So the ultimate need at Christmas is not a set of new rules. It's a living relationship with God. And God's made that way possible by sending a Savior at Christmas. But I read something recently that really spoke to my heart that the level of intimacy, relationship that you have with God presently often translate and correlates to your own connection and diligence to seek Him, just to be with Him. God has made the way open and available for us. But walking with Him in obedience is what keeps the temperature of that relationship firing. Does that make sense? Well, what do we learn from Joseph this morning? Well, it says, he woke up and did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He just followed God. With whatever God laid before him, he stepped into it. And wholeheartedly and completely. It didn't say anything in there from the angel and don't touch her. Right? I didn't see that from the angel. But what does Joseph do? He says, I want to follow you, God, wholeheartedly, completely. I like what this author says, that maybe the lesson we learn from this silent hero of, the, of this story in Christmas is just to allow your actions to speak louder than your words. To follow the Lord in simple obedience. That, that message of obedience is at the heart of Christmas. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Jesus humbled himself and in obedience died a criminal's death on the cross. Matthew opens up this gospel. Matthew is one who's a tax collector who knows he has a need for a Savior. He shows through this genealogy, through the list of four women, that Jesus, Jesus is available to all. All that recognize that they need a Savior. Why? Let me say it one last time. Here's why. Because the story of Christmas, it's a God thing. It's the story of God as the ultimate promise maker and promise keeper, providing good on his promise 
to send a Savior to all people. And Jesus humbled himself in obedience to God, died a criminal's death on a cross, rose again from the grave, and is coming again for us. That's the ultimate message and meaning of Christmas. You know, we're steeped in that concept of Christmas being something where things finally come to resolution, right? Clark finally gets his bonus. Ralphie, even though he may shoot his eye out, he got the gun, right? The Grinch, his heart finally grew three sizes bigger than it was. Finally, it came. That sense of anticipation and arrival upon which you were anticipating and hoping for. It's interwoven into everything within culture, it seems. So what's the ultimate need? Well, the story of Christmas is the story of God, who's the ultimate promise maker, the ultimate promise keeper, providing good on his promise to give what we ultimately need. In church, what do we ultimately need? A Savior. It's a Savior. Don't miss that message. Don't miss that meaning this Christmas. But also, what's our response? Uh, it says, Joseph woke up and did as the angel of the Lord said. Walk with God. You're designed for a relationship with Him. A relationship with Him. Not just to know about Him, but to know Him. To walk with Him. And walking with Him, that, that intimacy, that relationship... The viscosity of that comes in obedience as you walk with him. Let's learn that lesson that we see from this interesting silent character from the Gospel of Matthew Joseph, someone who walks with the Lord obediently and humbly. So thankful for how God paints this picture that we need ultimately a Savior. And then in the life of Joseph, we see someone who just walks with the Lord obediently. What would Christmas have been like if Joseph wouldn't have done that? I don't know. But for you and I this morning, may we remember that ultimate message and meaning of Christmas that God sent a Savior, and may we walk with that Savior today obediently. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join us again as we dive into the Scripture, going verse by verse here at Coastline Calvary Chapel. 